Good evening and good day, everybody. Welcome to the sixth live episode of the Indian Interest, the show in which we examine the world from the Indian perspective, from the perspective of the Indian national interest. So uh, there are a number of things I would like to speak about today, but let us begin with the situation in Ukraine, because that is something that does affect India's national interest and uh, uh, India's position in the global uh, stage. So what's happening in Ukraine right now? The Ukraine war is still continuing. It began on in the last week or so of February. I think February 24th. Today is the 23rd of April. So it's about two months since this uh, conflict began. And right now, uh, what we know is that the Russian advance has retreated, most likely, from, uh, from Kiev and other parts of Ukraine. And it is concentrating in the Donbass region, in the southern parts of Ukraine, and in the eastern parts of Ukraine. So if we take a look at the map, where's the map? Just a second, let me share the map so that we understand what's happening. One second. <clears throat> okay, here is the map. Let us go to Ukraine. So earlier, the Russians had advanced all the way to Kiev. They had essentially encircled the city of Kiev. And they were... Uh, conducting military operations in various other parts of the country as well. Now they have withdrawn from Kiev and they are concentrating on the eastern part of the country, Ukraine, and the southern part, the, the coastal regions of the country. So what is going on? So what it appears to me is that it. I get the impression that the advance on Kiev was a diversion. There is a standard tactic used in, in uh, military campaigns, it, diversion. So it's like a chess move in which you pretend to be going after a certain chess piece, but your actual objective is something else. So you force the enemy, the adversary, to concentrate where you don't, where, where you don't actually intend to have a military operation. So you, you essentially fool the enemy. That's what uh, you do in a diversion. So it looks like the advance on Kiev and the encirclement of Kiev was a military diversion. And the actual objective of the Russians is eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine, especially the coastal regions and the Don Donbass region. Because these are the regions where you have a Russian-speaking majority. So these regions are ethnically and linguistically Russian. And it looks like that's what the Russians actually are seeking to incorporate into Mother Russia. And uh, so it looks like that's the real objective. And the rest of the Ukrainian nation will be, will be allowed to remain independent, but on Russian terms, which means that it cannot become part of NATO, it cannot align with the West and so on and so forth. So that is what it looks like after two months of the conflict. Most likely, it is the eastern part of Ukraine that the Russians will reabsorb in some way or the other, and the coastal regions of Ukraine, which essentially the Black Sea region, uh, Mariupol, Kherson, and so on, and in, including the Sea of Azov. So that is what it looks like is happening, and that is something that we need to be aware of, because that's because India's national interest is obviously nowadays intertwined with global happenings. So that is the situation as we speak in Ukraine right now. After two months of the conflict, the Russian ruble, which had declined so precipitously, is now going strong. It is actually right now stronger than what it was at the beginning of the Ukraine conflict. That's interesting. So they have succeeded 
in stabilizing the ruble and even making it slightly stronger than what it was on February 24, which is again very interesting. Now let's talk about something else. Uh, as we know, there has been this Russian ship that sank. So this is the uh, battle cruiser Moskva. This is how it used to be. And uh, as we know, it sank in the Black Sea during the operations uh, of the Ukraine war. So this is the most significant loss of a major warship since the uh, Malvinas war in the 1980s. So in the 1980s, I think it was 1982 or so when I was a little kid, that's when the uh, British had attacked the Argentine islands of Las Malvinas. The, the, in the English-speaking world, it's called the Falkland Islands. In the English-speaking world, this is called the Falklands War. So this was UK aggression, in supposedly in retaliation to Argentine uh, aggression and so on. This was a naval war. It was at sea. And that was, that was where the last major battleship casualty happened. So after that period in time, this is the uh, most significant uh, battleship that has been lost in warfare, the Moskva. So this is what the ship used to look like. And this is uh, one of the final images that we get, that we got of this battleship while it was sinking. So as you can see, it is tilting or, or listing to one side. And you can see there is smoke damage. There is smoke damage. There is smoke that's uh, still being emanating. Uh, that is still emanating from the ship. There, is, there, you can see some fires are there, uh, and there are more images available. This is a different angle. Again, you can see there is a fire that is still burning, which is quite low on the on the ship's hull. This is one of the places where there is uh, smoke damage. This is where the fires are burning and so on. So this is what happened, and this again is the overall uh, how the ship looked when it was sinking. So the question is, what happened to this ship? What happened? So what is being said is that this ship was sunk by uh, by Ukrainian R-360 Neptune anti-ship missiles. This is what that missile looks like. This is the R-360 Neptune anti-ship missile. It's a Ukrainian missile. So that is what is being claimed. That this is the missile that destroyed, that, that sank that ship. So that is the official scenario. That is what the media is claiming. That is what the English-speaking media is claiming. The Ukrainians are claiming that this, it is a missile strike that destroyed the ship. So that is what we can call scenario one. Scenario two is that it was not one single missile. It was multiple Neptune anti-ship missiles, Ukrainian missiles, that hit the Russian sh ship and destroyed it and sank it, right? And scenario three is a little more complex. You may have had one or two or multiple missiles in addition to a torpedo strike. So what's a torpedo? A torpedo is essentially an anti-ship weapon that is that uh, that uh, proceeds underwater. It's, it's, a, it's typically fired from submarines. It can also be deployed from ships or even from aircraft, but typically it's fired from submarines. It's like a small missile kind of weapon that travels underwater and hits the ship underwater, right? So if you look at the the damage on the ship, you can see that there are certain portions where there, there seems to be damage in the hull 
at the at the water level or even even below the water level which kind of seems to indicate that there was a torpedo strike now why do i so i believe that scenario 3 is more likely that first of all there may have been one or two neptune anti ship missiles that hit the ship and then this was followed up by a torpedo strike that is in my opinion more likely first of all because of what we see because of the kind of damage we see on the ship there seems to be damage at the waterline and below the waterline and that's what essentially makes the ship sink so i believe that that is the more likely scenario and why do i say this why do i say it's a it's it's likely there was a torpedo strike see first of all when we talk about a missile strike every missile carries a certain amount of kinetic energy right now the neptune anti ship missile has a certain kinetic energy and is it is it enough to destroy a ship so let, let's understand what kinetic energy is for instance if you have a cricket ball a cricket ball has a mass of about 160 grams that's the weight and if a cricket ball is traveling at 100 miles per hour 161 kilometers per hour it has a kinetic energy of about 160 joules so the kinetic energy formula is very simple 1/2 mv squared m is the mass v is the velocity so that's so for a cricket ball traveling at 100 miles per hour the kinetic energy is 160 joules that's the kind of impact it will have on your head if it hits you right so that is the impact of a cricket ball traveling at 100 miles per hour now in case you have a sniper bullet a sniper bullet it will have a different kind of kinetic energy so depending on the type of cartridge the type of rifle etc it will have the amount of kinetic energy that is carried in about a, between 75 to 125 cricket balls traveling at 100 miles per hour that is the amount of energy a single bullet carries now the neptune missile has a mass of about 870 kilograms this missile here it has a subsonic speed so let's say it's 300 meters per second so its kinetic energy is approximately 40 million joules which is the equivalent of 2.5 lakh cricket balls traveling at 100 miles per hour so if you have 2 and 1/2 lakh cricket balls each of them traveling at 100 miles per hour the kinetic energy they would carry together is the kinetic energy that this missile can impart based on its speed and its mass in addition it has a 150 kilogram warhead so that is 2.5 lakh cricket balls now if you have a brahmos missile which has a mass of 3000 kilograms 3 tons it has a speed of mach 3 three times the speed of light or uh, three is speed of sound then its kinetic energy is 1.6 billion joules which is 1 crore cricket balls traveling at 100 miles per hour which is 40 times the kinetic energy of the neptune missile and the brahmos carries a much larger warhead 300 kilograms right so that is the kind of situation we have with the brahmos missile so now if you have a neptune missile or any subsonic missile that hits a ship it's going to be traveling at a high altitude about 3 4 kilo 3 4 meters above the ocean it's a sea skimming missile is going to create this sort of damage it's not going to sink a ship it's going to create a big hole in the ship but the ship will survive eventually this is a different angle of a different ship hit with a different subsonic missile so this is the kind of damage you have but it is not enough to sink a missile 
So that's why I believe it is most likely that the Moskva was sunk first by the impact of one or two anti-ship missiles, the Neptune missiles, and then it was followed up by a torpedo strike, maybe one or multiple torpedoes. Now, a torpedo is typically delivered from a submarine. So the question is, who did this? Right? The question is, if there was a torpedo strike on the Neptune, who did that? Was there an American submarine lurking in the Black Sea? Was there any Turkish involvement? Because the Turks have been playing one side against the other. They are playing geopolitical games. They are playing, they are, they are doing rent-seeking, geopolitical rent-seeking. That's what Mr. Erdogan is doing. So was Turkey involved in some way? I think it is unlikely the Turks were involved directly in this action because that would be very dangerous for them. Russia is right next door. But it seems that something else is going on there. Maybe there was a submarine involved in this. Submarines are the true hunter-killers of the ocean. They remain, they are like the black operations of the seas. They remain hidden. What they do is always classified. It is always secret. And even after they they successfully kill a ship, it will not be revealed. That is what submarines do. They, the submarines are the real danger in the oceans, not these surface ships. So why am I going on talking about this ship, Moskva, when this show is about the Indian national interest? It's because it is relevant to the Indian national interest. I have said, I have made no secret of my opinion that India should invest in submarines and stop investing in surface vessels, especially stop investing in aircraft carriers. We have two and that's enough. Now think about what, how, how an aircraft carrier can be killed. As you can see, this big, massive Russian ship was taken down either by cruise missiles or most likely, even more likely by a combination of a cruise missile and a torpedo. Right? So it's very easy to destroy a surface ship. A surface ship is a slow-moving object. The fastest, uh, the fastest aircraft carriers, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, they travel at about 60 kilometers per hour. 60, 65 kilometers per hour, which is really slow moving, especially when you have a maneuvering, maneuvering missile, especially when you have a missile that can track moving objects. It's, it's child's play to take out such a ship. Of course, when you have an aircraft carrier, you have an entire task force around it, 5, 10 destroyers to, to, to defend it with anti-ship anti missiles, you know, missiles that, that can take out anti-ship missiles and so on. But it's still a numbers game. Let's say I have 10 destroyers protecting my aircraft carrier and each of them has 50 missiles with an accuracy of 50%, which means that the, the total number of missiles that can defend my aircraft carrier is 500 with an accuracy of 50%, which means if I launch 250 missiles at this aircraft carrier, the task force will be able to defend it. But if I launch 251 missiles, it's a mathematical certainty that I'm going to hit the aircraft carrier. So that's how easy it is. It's a mathematical certainty if you have the numbers that you're going to be able to destroy an aircraft carrier. Now you don't even have to do that. You don't have to fire 251 missiles. What you can do is you can fire, let's say a BrahMos missile with a 300 kilogram payload, not at the aircraft carrier, Let's let's take a look at an, a, a hypothetical aircraft carrier. This is uh, one of the Chinese aircraft carriers. So if I want to destroy this aircraft carrier, I don't have to fire a missile directly at it. 
I can fire a Brahmos missile, which will detonate its warhead, let's say five kilometers above this guy. But let's say I am I have placed a nuclear warhead in my Brahmos missile. The Brahmos missile can easily carry a warhead of about a hundred kilotons, maybe even two hundred kilotons. That's a massive missile. That's a massive warhead. If I detonate that warhead five kilometers above this aircraft carrier and its destroyers, my warhead is going to obliterate everything without even even coming near the aircraft carrier. That's how easy it is. I can detonate the, the missile five kilometers in any direction away from the ship and it will still destroy the ship and the entire task force. And then there is something else. What if I deploy a, a, a torpedo? Now, this is not your regular torpedo. This is the Russian Squal torpedo. It is a special kind of torpedo. It's a super cavitating, uh, supersonic torpedo, right? It has a... A speed of more than 370 kilometers per hour and a range of 10 to 15 kilometers. And it, it can carry a warhead of more than 200 kilos. You can place a nuclear warhead on this torpedo and detonate it, detonate it one kilometer under the aircraft carrier. It will obliterate everything. So please understand that I am not advocating nuclear warfare. I am simply offering you different scenarios. So what I mean to say is that it is very easy to take out surface ships, slow-moving surface ships. The surface ships are obsolete. The aircraft carrier is obsolete. It was the principal ship of any navy in the Second World War, in the 1950s. And it is still a viable option when you are bullying a weak nation. But when you are against a dangerous nation, an evenly matched nation with with good cruise missiles, it's foolhardy to send an aircraft carrier there. You're going to have to hide the aircraft carrier. So that's why I believe, I'm very strongly of the opinion that India should invest in submarines. You don't have to invest in very expensive billion-dollar submarines. We need a few nuclear submarines for sure, but we can invest in cheaper submarines as well. For instance, there is a submarine called the Gotland-class submarine. It costs just a hundred million dollars, cheaper than an F-35 plane, and it is so silent. It has, in the past, in training exercises, even taken out American aircraft carriers in war games, not actual uh, kills, but you know, training kills. So that's how dangerous submarines can be. So that is the future. Submarines are the future, not aircraft carriers, not surface ships. Right. So let's move on to a different story now. Uh, the Ukraine war is going on, but there are lessons for Taiwan from the situation that's going on in Ukraine. So uh, the Americans believe that the current decade is a very dangerous, it, it's, it's the most dangerous decade uh, of US-China competition. So this is a report from December 21 by Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. It says that US-China competition enters the decade of maximum danger, the 2020s. So this is what the Americans believe is the most dangerous decade, decade for US-China competition. Now, there are many parallels with Ukraine when it comes to uh, the US-China rivalry. For instance, the Ukraine war was precipitated by the relentless salami slicing tactics that NATO has been following. 
since the early 1990s the, the nato had in in 1991 nato had uh, given a guarantee to the ussr that it would not expand a single inch eastward but they kept on breaking this promise this guarantee and they have been expanding relentlessly eastward and eventually they crossed the red line which is when ukraine was expressing its uh, desire to join nato and that's the red line that the russians simply could not allow the americans to cross and that's what precipitated the ukraine conflict its roots go back to 91 and uh, the second uh, the the red line was crossed in in uh, 2014 so that is the tactic of salami slicing going an inch forward at a time which is a, a tactic even the chinese have been using against india ever since they uh, annexed tibet from the 1950s onwards so the chinese have been doing this to india inching forward one inch at a time one foot at a time half a kilometer at a time grabbing a little bit of territory here a small size slice here a small bite there and that's what they have been doing ever since salami slicing and that's what they have been doing in the south china sea salami slicing uh, constructing artificial islands creating new facts on the ground and so on and so forth so now so in the case of ukraine what happened is that nato's relentless eastward expansion progressively altered the strategic environment for russia that the russians faced in europe and eventually they were forced to uh, take kinetic action military action and because they were the ones who fired the first shot that's why they have been painted as the big villain so from china's perspective the same thing is happening in uh, in asia for instance the americans are parking warships on the doorstep of china they are holding naval sailing competitions in the taiwan straits they are landing american officials on taiwanese soil in military planes not civilian planes military planes right they are cre- they have created a taiwanese airspace zone ads adiz zone air de- air defense interdiction zone or something like that that's what it's called right they are providing military trainers to taiwan they have invite they are inviting taiwan to various summits on democracy and they are slowly progressively slice by slice eroding the one china framework so i am not advocating the chinese national interest i am telling you that this is the chinese perspective we have to understand the chinese perspective to try and predict or foresee what may happen during this very dangerous decade so i am i'm very clear about the fact that the chinese are a major aggressor in asia they are the big bully in asia and uh, they themselves have been indulging in all these salami slicing tactics of disrespecting other countries of not uh, caring about other countries uh, borders boundaries interests and all that but they are accusing the americans of doing the same thing and they have various red lines that the americans are now perhaps crossing there are various military and uh, diplomatic departures that the americans are doing from the status quo agreements that they have so the chinese claim that there is a growing american aggression and a growing gradual cumulative encroachment by the united states into china's strategic backyard into china's zone of influence where it believes it should have sole influence right so beijing has not stated clearly what the red lines are but we can guess at what they are taiwan is a major red line and uh, such other things so, so just like the russians eventually 
were forced to take military action beijing might similarly feel compelled at some point in time in the future maybe far future maybe near future beijing might similarly feel compelled to use force against taiwan a military uh, approach a military uh, uh, operation which essentially means an invasion of taiwan now the russians are also aware of the fact that despite the american sanctions on russia putin vladimir putin is growing in popularity in russia his popularity is rising because of his steadfast action and uh, that's what the russians desire they desire to see a strong leader who will put the national interest first and uh, the chinese communist party is observing this it is uh, taking the ukraine action by the russians as a, as a case study for taiwan right so the chinese have concluded that the americans desire war they don't mind a war in taiwan because that will essentially induce china to fire the first shots and the americans want a bipolar world a war in taiwan will push the world towards bipolarity it will even most likely convince india to side with the us and go firmly into the american camp because if the chinese chinese go against taiwan and do something there they might just tell us as well do it against india so these are the calculations that are going on right now right so ukraine is a case study for xi jinping and based on what we have seen thus far the russians have been very restrained they have not used massive power and so on based on whatever they have seen and studied the chinese might conclude that if they invade taiwan they may need massive initial firepower a massive initial assault may be needed with overwhelming firepower highly concentrated firepower and they will they may have to disregard civilian casualties right so that is one of the lessons they may be learning from what's happening happening in ukraine and we know that taiwan has invested in lots of american weaponry ballistic missile defense systems air defense mine warfare sea mines that they can place in the sea then sea denial weapons and strategies shore denial weapons and strategies electronic jamming of aircraft and even planning for various kinds of insurgencies in in case the chinese are able to make some headway in their invasion of taiwan right so that is one lesson the chinese may have learned from the invasion of ukraine now i have said in the past that we have to be very careful we india india has to be very careful about the coming one or two years because there's an election coming up in 2024 and the chinese are not happy with a strong government at the center india has a very robust foreign policy right now very vigorous active foreign policy which puts india's interests first chinese don't like it the chinese would prefer to have a very weak indian government so they may be tempted to indulge in some kind of military misadventure with india to try and to try and you know what according to them humiliate india and make the government look weak so it is something that may be very tempting for the chinese so maybe they could keep taiwan for the future and maybe try something in india so india has to be awake to this india needs to be aware of this possibility i have said this in the past other people have other well experts foreign policy experts geopolitics experts have also con- concurred with this that there is a possibility maybe some kind of military misadventure this year or next year it is a possibility and you know what's funny is that even the americans may not mind this the americans are also not happy with india's robust foreign policy india has been pushing back against the us 
against the American attempts to browbeat India, to arm twist India. India has been pushing back very firmly. Even the Americans may not be too unhappy about a regime change in India and a, and a weaker government coming to power. So in this case, when it comes to India, the Americans and the, Thai, and the Chinese seem to be on the same page. So this is a dangerous time for India. And India will need to be uh, fully alert to any possible Chinese misadventure in the border. And I think India is well equipped to deal with any such situation. Right? So that is about uh, China, India, Taiwan. Now let's talk about something else that is in, happening right now. It's in the news. The Solomon Islands. What is this place? The Solomon Islands. Shall we, shall we take a look? Uh, let me show you this place on the map. The Solomon Islands. Let's go to Google Maps again. Our friend Google. Let's zoom out from here and let's go into Oceania. So this here is the continent of, our, of Australia, the country of Australia. To the north, you have Papua New Guinea, Indonesia. And to the east of Papua New Guinea, you have this country called the Solomon Islands. Okay. And uh, yeah, this is one of the islands uh, over there. This is, I believe, Guadalcanal, where you had a lot of military action during World War II. So this is the Solomon Islands. Now, why is this, this place, this, this little un, almost unknown country, why is it in the news right now? It's in the news because of China. So let me show you uh, some news reports of what is happening in the Solomon Islands. And, that, and once again, it involves China. So I showed you where the Solomon Islands are. Now there is this deal that the Chinese have reached with this little country. China deal in Pacific Stokes Australian fears. This is from the BBC, right? So the Chinese have reached some kind of agreement, some kind of deal with this country, which is raising alarm bells in Australia, in the in in the US, in NATO, and so on. Let's take a different take a look at a different report. Why Australia and the US care so much about China's security pact with a tiny Pacific island nation? This is the CNN. It's American portal, as you would know. And let's take a look at a different... This is the Guardian from the UK. The deal that shocked the world inside the China Solomon's Security Pact. A secret agreement that expands Chinese influence over the Solomon Islands has been signed. And let's take a look at one more. Why is a Chinese security deal in the Pacific could ripple through the world? This is the New York Times and it's behind a paywall, but you get the point. So that is what's happening. Now, what is this, this deal? So this is a secret deal, which uh, we don't quite know what the terms of the agreement are, but some of it seems to have been leaked. Now, let me show you the leaked portion of that. That may explain why there is this, this uh, apprehension. So this is the leaked portion of the deal. The draft security cooperation agree agreement between the two countries raises a lot of questions and concerns. So this is the leaked draft between the two countries, and uh, you guys can you guys can take a look at this at at your leisure. So it's been leaked. There's more here, and so on and so forth. So what essentially this deal is about? So it says that Chinese warships would be permitted to dock on the islands. 
Chinese warships would be permitted to dock on the islands. That's one part of the agreement. It says that Beijing could send security forces to assist this nation, this little nation, in maintaining law and order. Security forces, Chinese security forces. Right? It says that Beijing will deploy forces to protect the safety of Chinese personnel and major projects in the Solomon Islands. Again, security forces, military forces. It says that the Solomon Islands could request China to send armed police, military personnel, and other law enforcement and armed forces. It also seems to allude to a potential establishment of a permanent presence Chinese presence, military presence, such as a military base on the Solomon Islands. So the plans essentially reveal China's clear intention for the, for the Pacific Ocean region for the first time. It shows in black and white what China is asking for. So the Australians are really worried. The Americans are really worried because of the geographical implications. The Solomon Islands are about 1,500 kilometers away from the east coast of Australia. They are about 2,000 kilometers away from the major eastern cities of Australia, Brisbane, Sydney, so on and so forth. If the Chinese have a permanent military presence there, that is a big problem for Australia. The Chinese have already infiltrated deep into Australia in various ways. They have a stranglehold on the Australian economy. They seem to have infiltrated the political uh, framework in Australia. Australian businesses are heavily dependent on the, on, on the Chinese. The Australian education system, it serves the Chinese to a large extent. It depends on, on China. So the Chinese have infiltrated deep into Australia. And now there is this geographical problem that they may have a base quite near Australia. They could deploy warships there. They could de deploy aircraft carriers there, right? They could deploy submarines there. They could even deploy cruise missiles and ballistic missiles quite close to the Australian mainland. That is a very big problem. And that is what the entire world is. That is what the Australians and the Americans are worried about. So some sections of Australia's political class are even calling for an invasion of the Solomon Islands in order to prevent uh, this sort of thing from happening. And what is interesting is that the Americans, let me show you, let me show you, the Americans now are talking about democracy in the Solomon Islands. So, when it loads, I will show you. All right. So, it says that the U.S. Indo-Pacific coordinator, Kurt, Kurt Campbell, meets with Solomon Islands opposition leader, Matthew Whale, in Honaira, the capital city to discuss democracy-strengthening initiatives in the Solomon Islands in the region. So now the Americans want to bring in democracy because the democratically elected government of the Solomon Islands is going, is, is, uh, is, um, going into the Chinese orbit. <laughs> so the Americans want to strengthen democracy by maybe having a regime change operation or something. So they will try every trick in the book and they will call it democracy, which is the standard American playbook. So I am not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. Obviously, if the Chinese get stronger, it's bad for India. But this is a, this is an evolving situation. So it may so happen that we may see a political a coup in the Solomon Islands, a regime change operation mediated by the Americans, and it will then be portrayed as a strengthening of democracy or whatever. But this is something that may be in the offing. right? But that is what the Chinese are doing. So the Chinese, on the one hand, they complain about American salami slicing, about America 
uh, encircling China. On the other hand, they are also trying to encircle the American interests in Australia. Australia is essentially a U.S. colony. That's more or less what it is, right? So that is the geopolitical game of chess that is being played in the Indo-Pacific region, especially the, the Pacific Ocean region right now. There are lots of small little countries there in the Pacific Ocean region. Many of these countries have an American military presence there. Let me show you. Why don't we take a look at that as well? Let's go back to, to the maps. And I will show you an example of American military presence in the same region. So, we spoke about the Solomon Islands. This is the Solomon Islands. Now, let's go to the Federated States of Micronesia. This is the Federated States of Micronesia. And where is that place? Ah, here we are. The Northern Mariana Islands. So, this is north of Australia, as you can see. North of Papua New Guinea. This is an island called Guam. Now, you may never have heard of this, but it's a very important place. Let me show you why. So if we go to the northern portion of Guam, you will see this air base here. It's an, air, it's an air, airport. There's a, there's, there are two airports here. There's one here, the International Airport. And there is another airport over here. There's a third airstrip here, which doesn't seem to be in use. But let's take a look at this one. So this is U.S. Navy, CFAF, whatever, Guam. And if you look here, you can clearly see long-distance heavy strategic bombers, American bombers, stationed here. More American military planes stationed here. And if you look deeper, you will find more evidence of American uh, military activity over here. So this is one of the major most important American military bases in the Pacific Ocean region, the island of Guam. And as you can see, it's not really far away, not very far away from the Solomon Islands. So that is the game of chess that is being played in the Pacific Ocean region. And that's why the Americans are worried, the Australians are worried. And uh, yeah, that's that's what's going on. The Chinese are trying to expand their footprint in all directions. Right. Now, since we're talking about China, let's wind back a couple of weeks and talk about the Chinese foreign minister, Mr. Wang Yi. Mr. Wang Yi. So what about Mr. Wang Yi? Why am I talking about Mr. Wang Yi? It's because of, it is because of this. Here we go. There we are. So Mr. Wangi very recently was in India. He made a nice little visit to India. He met India's foreign minister, Dr. S. Jayashankar. He met uh, India's uh, national security advisor, I believe, Mr. Ajit Doval and so on. There were consultations and discussions and so on. So the question at that time was, why did what was the purpose of Mr. Wang Yi's visit to India? What was he trying to achieve? At the time, it was not very clear. Uh, Mr. Modi did not meet him, but our, fire, our foreign minister met, met him and, uh, and so on. So what was the purpose of this visit? What was he trying to achieve by coming to India? And did he achieve those objectives? Was there any progress in Indo-China relations? So the first thing we have to understand is that before Mr. Wang Yi, right before he came to India, he was in Islamabad. He was attending the organizations of, uh, Organization of Islamic Countries meeting in Islamabad. OIC meeting is in Islamabad. And over there, he made a very provo provocative statement about Kashmir. 
right? So he raised the Kashmir issue at the OIC conference, at the OIC meeting in Islamabad right before he came to India. So there was a provocation right before he came here. Now, what was the purpose? What was the objectives of his coming to India? First thing, the first thing is that the Chinese are worried right now. They have seen what the Americans can do without firing a single bullet. The sanctions regime that they've imposed on Russia is, is bone crushing, right? Now, the Chinese are also worried about US sanctions because they are also kind of siding with Russia. There's a Russia-China cooperation, coordination happening as we speak. And they are worried that the Americans may do the same thing in the future on their own country, on, on China. So the Chinese are worried that they are next. So one of the objectives of Mr. Wang Yi's meeting was to persuade India to take an anti-US, anti-West position under the pretext of multipolarity. We want to preserve a multipolar world. We don't want a bipolar world. The Americans are trying to create a bipolar or monopolar world, unipolar world. So it is in our interest, our shared interest of India, China, Russia, all other good countries, good countries to have a multipolar world. So I believe one of the objectives of this, this uh, visit to India was to persuade India to take an anti-US, anti-West position and pro-China position under the guise of multipolarity. The second objective most likely was to kind of encroach into the special relationship that India has with Russia under the under the guise of creating a unified front, a unified front between India, Russia, China, and so forth. Right. The thing is, if they want all this, they have to offer India something in return. And the problem is that they are not willing, the Chinese are not willing to offer anything to India in return. For instance, they can bring military tensions down, right? There is this this very hot situation going on since the, since 2020, I believe, at the India-Tibet border, especially in Ladakh, the hot springs region and, and, and various other places. So there is this massive standoff going on between the Indian armed forces and the Chinese uh, encroaching army. They call it the PLA or whatever. So there is this big standoff going on. So if they want India to come on their side or take a certain position, they can offer something in exchange, like bring the military tensions down, do some troop disengagement, some de-escalation and so on. But that is something they were not willing to offer India. They wanted India to take their side, to take a multipolar side, to take anti-US, anti-West side, but they were not willing to offer anything in return. They, Mr. Wangi did not offer to bring tensions down. He did not offer to concede any kind of troop disengagement and de-escalation. He spoke about meeting halfway. He did not speak about re-establishing the status quo ante as it was before the Chinese escalation. Right? So he wanted everything without offering anything in return. So that's the attitude that he came with. And the last objective of his meet of, of his coming to India was to make sure that Mr. Modi, that India's Prime Minister Mr. Modi, attends the BRICS meeting in China, which is going to happen later this year. So his objective, I believe this was the primary objective, to ensure that Mr. Modi does attend the BRICS 
meeting, the BRICS summit in China later this year. Because if one of the major BRICS powers does not attend the meeting, the meeting becomes meaningless. And it would be a big embarrassment for China if such a thing happens. So Mr. Wangi wanted to ensure that Mr. Modi will attend the BRICS meeting. But he wanted to ensure that without making any commitment on military disengagement and de-escalation in Ladakh. And therefore, what's happened is that Mr. Wang Yi got nothing that he wanted. He did not meet, he did not achieve any of his objectives. He was not able to make India take an anti-US stand, an anti-West position. He was not able to encroach into the India-Russia relationship by becoming the third wheel. And he was not able to ensure that Mr. He was not able to get a commitment that Prime Minister Modi will attend the BRICS meeting in China later this year. So his trip to India essentially was a big failure. So that tells you where India-China relations currently stand. Many people have been expressing the hope that India-China-Russia will come together, form some kind of alliance, and you know offer an alternative world order and all that. These are far-fetched dreams. These are fantasies. The Chinese do not see India as an equal nation. I would say with some with good with good reason. They are a much larger economy. They are a more more powerful military power. They they have the wherewithal to open military bases in various parts of the world, especially the Indo-Pacific region. India is not at that stage yet, and therefore they do not see India as their equal. They want to browbeat India. They are, of course, worried that India may rise in the future and become a big threat to China. And they seek to seek to subjugate India and keep India down. So that is the stand that China is taking. That is where we are. right? So there is no possibility any time in the near future or medium-term future or even distant future of, of a China-India rapprochement or a China-India alliance. Even if in the future they, they make some moves like that, India has to take it with a lot of under a lot of advisement. You simply cannot trust the Chinese Communist Party. That is what history teaches us. So I would request all of you, my dear friends, my dear viewers, please do not hold hopes of an India-China alliance. It's not going to happen anytime soon in the coming future. Right? Right. That's about India and China. So now let us come to the main topic. Bipolarity versus multipolarity. Uh, the title of, of the video that I've put is that India. it's about India's rise as a major pole in the emerging multipolar world. So what's happening right now? The past few months, various geopolitical experts, strategic experts, and so on, have been touting the emergence, the impending emergence of a bipolar world order, including certain experts I have called on my own podcast on this very channel. Right? So these are people who essentially are part of the West. So they have been saying that the world is going to become very rapidly bipolarized in the coming years, definitely in this coming decade. That's what everyone is saying. And yet what we are seeing right now is, is the very opposite of that. The world is becoming more multipolar rather than bipolar. The question is who wants bipolarity? The Americans seek a bipolar world. They don't seek a unipolar world. They don't seek a multipolar world. They seek a bipolar world. Now the question is, why don't the Americans want a unipolar world in which they are the only power? 
well then who's going to fight the wars their major uh, their economy depends on wars they have these enormous mega corporations weapons manufacturing companies that need wars to go on so if you don't have a big enemy somewhere and then other enemies then how do you fight wars how do you finance that big monster how do you feed the military industrial complex so the americans always do well when they have a big bad guy sitting somewhere who they can blame everything on that's been the story of the cold war in the 20th century now they seek a new bipolar order in which there is a big bad guy china of course that they can uh, fight against and they will portray themselves as a great righteous righteous power they are the good guys the chinese are the bad guys and that's what they seek so they seek a bipolar world in which there are two major powers and everybody else is in this side or that side in one camp or the other that's what the americans seek what do the chinese seek the chinese seek eventually a unipolar world order they don't seek to have a bad guy somewhere that they can fight against they want to be the center of the universe right the middle kingdom and every other nation every other culture civilization etc needs to come and bow down to them and pay tribute and they will decide how the world will function so that is the great chinese dream a unipolar world and they hope to achieve that by 2049 or 2050 or whatever it is right so that is the great chinese dream dream so it is in the american interest to create a bipolar world as rapidly as possible it is in the chinese interest to have a multipolar world until until they hope that the americans decline that the american nation declines and then they can create a unipolar world order so it is in the chinese interest to have a multipolar world for this decade and maybe in the next two decades the americans seek a bipolar world the russians seek a multipolar world the indians us we also seek a multipolar world for now right so it looks like india russia china etc are in convergence about this that right now for now we all seek a multipolar world the americans want a bipolar world so what's really happening so all the western experts are saying that we are going to see a, multi, a, a bipolar world very rapidly very soon but what's happening right now is that as long as india exists as a unified nation and as a rising economy you simply cannot have a bipolar world india is too too big to be subsumed into one camp or the other india has an independent foreign policy india has a strong government and india has a growing economy and the economy is projected to keep growing that is that sort of situation is such that is such that a bipolar world can never happen as long as india rises like this you're going to have a multipolar world especially with an assertive india with a strong robust foreign policy for the first time in forever india is looking after its own national interest and asserting itself so that it makes india a major power it makes india not a great power or a superpower but certainly a major regional power in the indian ocean region and the americans also need india against china if they want to deal with china they can, in the indo pacific region via the quad or any any other framework they simply cannot do it without india india is currently indispensable so that is the big conundrum that the americans are facing 
and everybody else is facing so as long as india exists and and even as long as russia exists you you, you will not have a bipolar world the russians are simply too big to be subsumed into the chinese camp they are essentially an autarky they don't depend on imports they are very much self sufficient in terms of resources and and their economy so the russians despite the sanctions they're going to keep on doing well they're going to keep on doing okay at least and india is going to keep rising whether you like it or not so that's why we have a multipolar world now india in the past few months if you see has become the center of world diplomacy right so in this this year you had so many people visiting india for instance there was a german admiral who came to india in a naval ship it became quite quite controversial because of the remarks he made against china so the german admiral came to india the uh, uk's secretary of state for international trade came to india the foreign minister of greece came to india the prime minister of japan mr kishida came to india the foreign minister of austria came to india the trade minister of canada came to india a major a, a, a very important general from saudi arabia came to india he interacted with the indian uh, uh indian officials indian uh, armed forces official officials etc then the australian minister of trade and tourism came to india so much diplomatic activity after the ukraine conflict started the foreign minister of russia mr lavrov came to india and this was notable for the fact that all of these other people who came to india not meet prime minister modi but mr modi made sure that he did meet mr lavrov the foreign minister of japan uh, of uh, russia i beg your pardon that tells you what kind of relationship india has with russia it's a special relationship they we place a great deal of emphasis on this relationship and we value it very much so mr lavrov came to india quite recently and as soon as mr lavrov came to india the americans sent mr dalip singh this fine gentleman here his name is mr dalip singh i believe he's the deputy nsa of of the us i believe right deputy nsa or something so he came to india to essentially to essentially threaten india in in a certain way that uh, you need to ensure that you are on our side and not on the russian side and there will be consequences and so on and so forth they sent an indian origin person to try and coerce india and threaten india that's what the americans did that's the way the americans roll so there is no big surprise there so mr dilip singh came to india dilip singh then like we discussed mr wang yi came to india and the israeli prime minister mr bennett was supposed to come to india but he contracted that that virus and uh, that's why his visit has been postponed but he's going to come later i re- i expect reasonably soon and then our foreign minister dr jay shankar went to the us he met uh, mr blinken their their secretary of state and there was this go exchange of views i suppose a reasonably frank exchange of views if you know what that means and the americans expressed concern about the human rights situation in india and dr jay shankar expressed concern about the human rights situation in the us and he stated that india is a civilizational state and america needs to understand that and so on it's the first time any high ranking in an official ever has characterized india as a civilization state ever that's a fantastic statement so so far it's all words but 
in diplomacy, the weapons that you use are words. And right now, as we speak, the Prime Minister of Mauritius, I believe, Mr. Praveen Kumar Jagannath, is in India most likely right now as we speak. And even uh, the Prime Minister of the UK, Mr. Boris Johnson, is in India as we speak right now. And tomorrow, the European Commission President, uh, Mrs. Ursula von der Leiden, is going to come to India. She may already have landed, but her official visit starts tomorrow. So that's what's going on. So many diplomatic visits in India. India has somehow become the center of world diplomacy. Everybody is making a beeline to, here, to, to come to India. So that tells you that India is now rising as a major pole in a multipolar in an emerging multipolar world order. And no matter what the major powers do, whether it's the US or the Chinese, as long as, as long as this government stays in place, India is going to keep rising as a major player, as a major global geopolitical play, player and a major global power. Right now, India is not a major global power, but it is a major regional power. It is one of the big two in Asia. That's what it is. That's what India is today. If it continues rising the way it is rising right now for the next ten years, it's going to be a significant global player. If the rise continues continues for twenty years, India could be the in, the in the top three of the world. So that's where we are today. India is rising, whether people like it or not. India is rising is a major pole in the emerging multipolar world order. So that's what I have to talk about today. That's where we are today. That is the what the world looks like this week. right? So before I end, I have a couple of questions for you all. My question to, the first question is, what do you think? Is the world moving towards multipolarity in this decade? Or is the world going to become bipolar in this decade? Is it multipolarity? Is it bipolarity? Which one do you think it is? And the second question is, do you support the foreign policy that the Modi government is following? Do you think it's a good foreign policy? Is it good for India? Or is it not very good for India? What is your opinion? Let me know in the comments below. Thank you for watching. And I will see you very soon in the next episode. Thank you. Bye.